What I want to talk about <coughs> is, um, I'm a demographer, my background. I'm not a migration specialist. I come at this, um, I come at this from a background of someone who moved to, uh, I've been working in Australia, I moved to Germany in 2001 to work, and European demography was, I was told, we want you to work on Europe. And in the early 2000s, there was already by that stage a tremendous amount of comments going on about low fertility in Europe, about how Europeans didn't want to have babies and this was a disaster and all kinds of aging and all kinds of problems were arising from this. And the more I looked at it, the more puzzled I was about this because the populations of Western Europe at that stage were not declining, they were actually if anything, increasing. And there were all kinds of population projections saying Europe's population is about to decline, this kind of stuff, and yet it was actually increasing. And of course the reason it was increasing, at least in Western Europe, was because of immigration. And so my interest has been in trying to understand the combined effect of fertility, childbearing, like biological reproduction on one side, with the impact of migration, the combined effect that they have on the age structure, on the working population. And um, it seems to me when I started looking at this that this impact, like if you're like looking at migration's consequences rather than its causes, there's a purely demographic side of this thing. What's not getting as much attention as I feel it really deserves. There's, a, there's quite, I mean, even a non-migration specialist like myself, you know, is aware that there's a great deal of work done and all kinds of numbers put forward on the economic impact, beneficial or otherwise, of migration. Um, there are people who talk about, well, you know, about that kind of thing. But the actual, purely, the, purely demographic impact of this thing in terms of age structural changes, I, I think it hasn't happened. I think it can be very, very important. And this probably reflects something about the, um, the past, in a way. If migration flows are relatively small compared with the overall population of the receiving country, then migration doesn't have much leverage. It doesn't, doesn't change much. But what we're seeing now in many European countries is that um, migration, immigration into countries, is now the main, and in many cases the only factor that's leading to population growth. It has a, it has a very significant role. In some countries in Europe, I mean the most extreme case for example is Spain. In the decade from the mid-90s, mid-1990s through to the mid-2000s, um, so 1995, 2005 something, there were about as many immigrants to Spain as babies were born. Um, it's an extraordinary number, a huge number of immigrants relative to the number of babies born. Almost no large, really large country has, has had an experience like that for a long time. Um, and so um, I think that looking at the impact of migration in, in its demographic, the demographic impact, population age structure impact, can be very potentially very important. Demographers have lots of ways, and it's looking at fertility, look at reproduction. But I think you can distinguish between, if you like, biological reproduction, how many children people have, and the concept of social replacement. Hannah Hieranius, writing as long far back as 1951 in population studies, drew this contrast and said that you can, you can think about how populations replace themselves over time. And of course, the one way that happens, and the extent to which they do that, is through having children. But equally, you can think of, you know, that you, the population can be replaced by migration. Um, and 
So biological reproduction focuses purely on fertility. But really understanding social replacement, you need to look at migrations right. He was writing in 1951, and a lot of some of the comparisons he made were for Sweden. He said, well, look, actually, in the 19th century, Sweden seemed to have a very high level of reproduction, lots of babies. But the emigration, mostly to Canada, mostly to the United States, and some extent to Canada and a few other places, was so great that the surplus was all being exported. And if you actually looked at social replacement, it was very modest, without a slightly increase. Um, so it can have an impact if you're emigrating, but equally, it can have an impact if the country is receiving it. Even earlier than that, in the 1930s, the idea that fertility had, or the recognition that fertility had fallen a lot from historic levels, and the idea that it would continue to be very low, received a tremendous amount of attention. If almost anyone, almost everyone who was anyone in terms of um, social sciences in the 1930s assumed that in developed countries, fertility would be very low, and in the long run you would have declining population. Um, there's some, you know, you can find work from John Maynard Keynes, for example, saying, well, the future is very uncertain and there's many things we don't know, but there's one thing we know for certain, and that's the population will decline. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it's really very well informed people who are making this assumption. And they liked the idea of what they call the replacement level, the idea of fertility. You need to have a little bit above two children a woman over a lifetime if you want to ensure that the generation of children is as big as the generation of the parents, so that you need to have sort of continuity from one generation to the next. It's a little bit above two, because typically there are slightly more boy babies than girl babies born, about 5% extra, and a very few people in an advanced country, as it is now, a few, some of them die before they grow up, so you have to take that into account, but 2.1 is often thought of as a kind of other generation. In the 1950s and 60s, what happened was you had a baby boom in much of Europe, and North America. Fertility went well above replacement level. The fears of population decline and disappeared. But through the late 1960s and into the 70s, fertility fell radically all around the developed world. And um, Western Europe has had this level of below replacement fertility now <coughs> for, in this country, over 40 years. It's about 45 years since we've had fertility at such a level where, according to the experts, this should mean a declining population. It hasn't declined in any year. It's been growing every year, in, in certainly in Britain and in most other countries. So what we're seeing is, is, a, is that this below replacement level fertility is being compensated for by immigration. And just to give you some idea of the kind of scale and timing of these fertility changes, if you look at Western Europe, Britain, France, Germany, other parts of most of Western Europe. Fertility has been below this level of 2.1 since the 70s. If you look at Spain, Portugal, Italy, from the 1980s, maybe from the 1980s, it began rapid decline in the late 70s. For Eastern Europe, from the end of communism, around 1990. Basically, everywhere in Europe, fertility is below the level of replacement, and seemingly staying that way. We've had a bit of an increase in recent years, but it's still well below replacement in most of Europe. In some parts of southern and eastern Europe, fertility fell to levels that no one had ever seen before. And demographers, like Francesco, had to invent new words for it to help us understand what it was. And so they had the concept of what's called lowest low fertility, fertility that's so low below replacement that you 
It was unimaginable until it happened. Interestingly, in East Asia, we've now seen even further. Nobody, nobody ever thought, well, fertility couldn't go below one child per woman over a lifetime. And two seems little, but one child on average per woman over a lifetime is now below that in, in Hong Kong and urban China and some other various, various places. But anyway, low is very, very low fertility. And everybody seems to, be, seems to get um, you know, ups, uh, worried about this. The European Commission, even the Pope, the Pope Benedict, his first, his first Christmas address to the Courier um, when, he became, when he became Pope, said it's terribly worrying how Europeans seem to have given up wanting to have children. We must try and persuade people that this is something terribly important. And yet at the same time, in southern and western Europe, the population has been consistently growing in most of these places. In eastern Europe, it's a different story, and I'll show you. And the, what's driven the growth is migration. And in many cases, it's, it's compensated for the shortage of children, as it were. It's topped up the, the birth cohorts and even exceeded that in many places. So we've had population growth. And when we're looking at replacement, looking at where one generation replaces itself, there's a long history in demography, demographic methodology, of combining fertility and mortality to try and look at that. But we also need to look at migration because, as I say, it plays a very important role. And there's a concept which received a lot of attention in the early part of the century, of replacement migration. Back in 2001, the United Nations Population Division published a little book which I suspect in retrospect they probably wish they hadn't probably produced in exactly the format they did. It was, it was basically a theoretical exercise, a kind of modelling exercise. How would you model population growth and population change in the future? Lots of rather theoretical stuff and not, not, not in fact closely related to policy at all. But they gave it a title, Replacement Migration, Is It a Solution to Declining and Aging Populations? Which seemed to imply that it was about policy. And this prop on balance, it probably wasn't a smart thing to do. If you're going to imply that you're dealing with policy, a theoretical, a whole set of theoretical calculations is probably not what, not what you want to produce. Because among the various things, they say, well, imagine if a country wanted to keep exactly the same age structure over time. Um, when, you know, when fertility got very low, how many migrants would you need? Well, of course, you need a lot. And they had some calculations. Well, if, if, the popu if South Korea wanted to keep exactly the same age structure that it had in 1960, um, indefinitely, basically <coughs> everybody in the world would have to end up moving to South Korea. And there's a paper that David Coleman gave at the Royal Society, said a, a parable for our times, how the world will all have to move to Korea. Um, but the, the, there was a tremendous amount of comment on this. And the large majority of the comment on the book was strongly negative. Many um, governments seem to go out of their way to make very strong criticisms of things. This is ridiculous, this is nothing, they don't understand what policies are, they don't, it's, it was really, a, there were some a very unusually harsh criticisms for a demographic publication of the United Nations, something which is normally so banal as to never receive no comment whatsoever. <laughs> 
And observing these changes, it, it seems to me quite interesting that no government seems to say, well, actually, this is quite a good idea. It's actually, we should, we should have this as a policy. Not one really talks about it as replacement migration as a deliberate policy tool. And yet, in reality, it's been happening. It's clearly what's been, what's been happening. And I wonder if sometimes that the fact that the, the, UN, the UN's book was actually almost too close to the bone for some governments. What governments are involved in is, in many cases, is either denial or less charitably cognitive dissonance that there is a great deal of migration. There has been, a great, in most of Western Europe, there has been a great deal of migration. There continues to be. There is likely to be in the future. But there's a pretense somehow that there isn't. You know, there's a pretense that somehow this is a, you know, that somehow this isn't part of the policy. It reminded me of a, an episode long ago of Yes Minister, the old, the old um, comedy program on the BBC. There was a, one episode where um, the minister was aghast to discover that uh, a large arms contract had been won for a British arms manufacturer by bribery in the Middle East. And the official said, yes, well, of course, that's the way it is. Are you telling me it's the policy of the British government to support corruption? No, of course not. That could never be our policy, just our practice. <laughs> and replacement migration strikes me as having some of the same resonance, so to speak. Nobody wants to say it's their policy, but in practice, that's what's been happening more or less throughout Western Europe. Demographers, in some way, um, contributed to this uh, sort of denial of contradictions in a way. Because if you look back 25, 30 years, or if you look back to 1980s, some of the first work was done, you'll find articles by famous demographers. There's one by Ron Leshager, from Belgium, one of the most famous demographers in, in Europe. Um, and it's that, his title was, Are Migrant Substitutes for Birth? And he, like many other people, basically said no. But basically, and the, the reason they said no was um, the sheer scale of migration that you'd need to cope with the amount of shortfall in the births was so great you couldn't imagine it. Therefore, you had to try and get people to have more babies because you couldn't possibly cope with so many migrants. And, um, you know, and the, what, what they were thinking is, was, well, if you have a shortage, shortfall of birth this year, if you want to keep the entrance to the labour force roughly the same, well, you could import some people, 20-year-olds or so, in 20 years' time, and keep the entrance to your labour force more or less the same. And that is indeed what happens in a great deal of, as we'll see, I'll show you some numbers, a great deal of Western Europe. But most of the modelling really thought this was impossible. The amounts of migration just couldn't be socially and politically feasible. But as I'll try and show you, even as people were writing these things, that writing these things, the, the conclusions were just being overtaken by events, that migration was happening on a very wide scale and, con and continuing. Now, when you want to deal with replacement migration, it's a, a very interesting, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting concept, but at the, it's only fairly recently gained a lot of attention. There's been perhaps a dozen, a dozen uh, demographers who have produced between them seven or eight different ways of trying to assess replacement migration over the, over the last 15 years or so. None of these approaches have been, have become a kind of de facto standard. And 
even the concepts, exactly defining what the concept is, exactly what you're measuring, isn't isn't um, isn't clear. Some of the measures, for example, try to look at replacement migration as a way of ensuring a constant stream of births in the population. How much you know, people come, migrants will come and have babies, and you measure the births that they have. So you measure the uh, birth replacement. What we were looking at was more is the um, population replacement. And to try and do this, what I'll show you are all numbers based on I think on the, what I call the overall replacement ratio, the ORR. This was a measure which I, I first uh, created deliberately to be as simple as possible because I created it first for a lecture I was due to give at a festival of social science run by the, of the ESRC. And I was asked to give a talk about Scotland's <coughs> demography and, and to a, to a non-specialist audience. So I wanted to get the simplest possible measure I could get. But then as I worked, and I made some calculations, as I began to work with it, I discovered that actually, even though it's a very simple calculation, it actually has quite a lot of, it's actually, it's actually a surprisingly useful one. It's actually, it's actually, I think, a measure which is a, um, illuminates um, the issues I've been talking about very well and overcomes quite a lot of the problems. And one of the problems of measuring these things is that, as you all know, migration can and often does vary very substantially one year to the next. Suddenly there's a war in Bosnia or something and half a million people go to Germany. Or something. You can have some enormous, you can have a lot of volatility. And this measure gets around that. And once I first came up with it, I worked with colleagues at St Andrews, Lee Williamson and Paul Hoyle, before he, he moved into the social science stratosphere, taking over as head of the ESRC, um, and also with Thomas Sobotka, <coughs> very brilliant young Czech demographer who works in Vienna. Um, and we worked together, we've looked at regions in the UK and countries around Europe to try and look at and the way in which most people have looked at replacement is they've tried to estimate fertility, they've estimated mortality, they've estimated migration, and they're trying to put them together. And what I've done is something different. What I'm suggesting is something different. Um, I'm just looking at the actual numbers of people there are in a country or a region at a certain age at a certain time. It's all based on the total numbers of people. I'm not looking at births or deaths or trying to count the number of migrants. I'm just basing this on information, census type information, where you know how many people there are at a certain time. Every country in Europe makes estimates for the country as a whole, and usually for regions and many other things, every year, of how many people there are in that region or country by age and sex, and they, they make estimates. Every 10 years they might have a census. We might have another one, probably not. Um, but they make estimates of how many people are there. And, um, year by year, and we can use that. And what the measure does is it looks at a cohort, people born in the same year, cohort of individuals born at the same time, as they get older, and as they get older at each age, still referring back to how many mothers there were, how many women there were in childbearing age when that cohort was born. I'll show you a little graph which I think will help explain it. Like many of these replacement indices, it scales so that if it's 1.0, it's exact replacements. And if it's 
If it's below one, that would imply that the population in the long run would decline. If it's above one, it implies growth in the population. And this little diagram, I'll try and, some of you will be very familiar with this type of diagram, some perhaps won't, so I'll try and explain what it is. It's what demographers call a Lexis diagram. It was named for a German statistician, Wilhelm Lexis, in the 19th century. And it's doubly ironic, actually, that it's called a Lexis diagram, because firstly, he didn't invent it. And secondly, when he used it, he did it, he did it differently. So the conventional, this isn't how Wilhelm Lexis drew them. He drew these cohorts going down as opposed to going up. But anyway, for better or worse, it's called a Lexis diagram. And the way the Lexis diagram works is that on, on the horizontal axis, you have time, years going on this way. And on this axis, you have age. So a particular point in time would actually be a line, or in fact, this gets represented by this band. This would represent a, a particular year. This would represent a particular year. And people are born. This is age zero down here. It ought to be a zero. People are born down here age zero. And of course, as time goes on, they get one year on, they get one year older. So people move up, individuals, cohorts, people born in the same year, start here and move up this diagonal as they go, as they go over time. So each, you know, the, when I talk about a cohort, it's people born in a certain year and they're getting one year older as one year time goes on. Time goes that way, age goes this way. And what I do is, what measure does is, as these people in this cohort go along, we keep referring back to this group here, and that's the, num that's the, that's the number of women who are in the childbearing ages at the time these children were born. These individuals were born down here. That's how many <coughs> women in childbearing ages there were at the time. It's a very, very simple calculation. Normally, demographers do all kinds of complicated things, mm, taking very complicated definitions of how you calculate an average of this and all kinds of, but this tries to be as simple as possible. Just look at the population of this cohort relative back to that population there. So that's the basic idea. So it's a very simple, uh, try and make it as simple a calculation as I can. I mean, it's, um, when I first presented all this to demographers, they were deeply confused because normally they do much more sophisticated things than this. And this was so simple, they were disoriented. You know, this was, uh, they couldn't get their head around, but, um, but you mean you don't weight it according to the age-specific fertility rates? No, you don't, you don't take you know, all these things that, there are all kinds of potential problems, but in practice, when you work on it, it turns out that they're not, it's not too bad a measure. It has its strengths and its weaknesses. The good side of this is that it has minimal data requirements. It has, all you're looking at is the population. And um, you have population usually by sex and age. Okay, sex by sex and age. Any population that you have, repeated estimates of the age and sex composition of the population, you can calculate this for. So any population. So I'll just show you numbers for countries or <coughs> large regions. But but in, if, for example, some you'll find you can some governments will produce estimates by socioeconomic definitions, how many people have got certain levels of education at the time, or things like this. Uh, ethnic groups, you know, the United States Census Bureau makes population projections for the whole of the next century by ethnicity, you know, whites, Hispanics, Asians, and so on. So you could calculate these things on that basis. 
You can also go down to quite small areas if you've got the information available. And if you have repeated censuses, you do have the information available. So you can, you can calculate. So that's a good side. Um, another good side is that testing it. So I've done a, we did a variety of tests to see how sensitive it was to the various assumptions that it was made. And it seemed as if, really, it was quite robust. It wasn't too bad. And it gets around this problem of migration changing from year to year because it's accumulated experience. These people are born. And what happens to them when they're in one and two and three and four? So it's the accumulated experience of these people all born in the same year. So there might be some years when some people move out, some when they move in, but it's the kind of aggregated experience over time. It gives it a kind of stability. On the, on the downside, it's not something that can completely just be made a completely routine operation. There are certain things, certain parts of the calculation require a degree of judgment. You have to decide, in particular, what age range of the age of mothers to take, you know, what constitutes the, the childbearing ages of mothers. In practice, even, even that is not, it, it doesn't make that much difference. But to, to its, um, in principle, that could be a problem. In practice, the sensitivity work we've done suggests it's, it's probably OK. But you need an element of judgment. It's not a completely routine calculation. And I'll show you some results for the UK and then some for Europe. What I'll show you for the UK will say several things. Firstly, it shows what we know to be true, but it shows it very clearly. The UK as a whole, we've had replacement migration now for 40 years. So basically, several decades out that um, the UK has fertility below replacement level, but each cohort is coming up and passing the level of replacement. It also shows that the, by far the overwhelming impact of that is happening in London and the southeast of England. I'll show you graphs distinguishing London and the southeast from the rest of the UK. And the rest of the UK shows almost no replacement migration. And that's quite interesting because we know <coughs> that there is migration into the rest of the UK, international migration into the rest of the UK. So what it means is international migration into the rest of the UK is roughly balancing internal migration or international migration out of the rest of the UK. In particular, people moving from the regions of England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, to London and the southeast. So there's an internal flow to the southeast that in some degree in the rest of the country has been balanced by international flows going to those other regions. And it also shows you that the, like I said, what it shows you is the overall impact of international and internal migration. And you can see when we look at some of the regions that internal migration flows can sometimes be quite, quite distinct and quite interesting. I'll, look at, I'll show you some data from Scotland where you have a very clear university age bulge in the Scottish population, whereby basically people from England are moving to Scotland. And this is before they started charging very high fees. But they're moving to Scotland and then leaving, largely leaving again. But it shows you how it can work. So let me show you the, the graphs. This is the UK. The graphs, the, the style of the graphs varies because I've cut and pasted these from different, slightly different sources, but they're all basically the same type of graph. There's age running along this axis, and there's the ORR on this axis, and these are different birth cohorts, cohorts born in different years, 72, 75, 80, 85, and 90. 72, in the UK, we still had even fertility was slightly more replacement than that. slightly more fertility than it declined a little bit and then rose up to that 
After 72, from 75 onwards, all, all these lines are down here. Fertility in the UK has actually been rather stable for most of the last 35 years now. It's been about 1.8, 1.9 children per woman, just a little bit below replacement level. So that's been very steady. Almost no change as each of these cohorts got older. I mean, you'll know much better than I the reasons why it's hard to get into the UK until you're 18. You'll know that you'll know those, those reasons. It's, it's very hard to come basically. There's not much migration of children into the UK. Um, they're rather horizontal, and then they begin to take off. <coughs> this 1.0 is the line of replacement. They're all going past. They're all going past. Um, in some cases, this is the 75 cohort past rate is about 30. The 80 cohort past rate is about 25. The 85 cohort past when it was about 22. Tremendous upturn in migration. They're all passing this replacement level. <coughs> so that's the UK as a whole. That's London and the southeast. We saw on the UK as a whole, you can see it goes, the, the line goes up from 0.9 to <coughs> 1.05 or something like that. For London and the southeast, it starts off lower. Fertility is a bit lower. It starts at 0.85. And by the time it's age 30, it's above 1.2. What this is telling you is that between the ages of about 18 and the early 30s, the number of people in that birth cohort in the southeast of England has gone up 50%. There's a 50% in migration. Imagine, you might imagine if, the, if there's 1 million people in that cohort when they're 18, there's 1.5 million by the time they get to be, by the time they get to be 30. And that's the result both of internal movement within the UK to the southeast, includes, including London, um, and international flows. So it's really a very, very striking change. And if you look at the rest of the country, you see a much more static picture. Basically, um, fertility is lower. It's a little bit irregular from one, one time point to the next. But basically, Whatever migration there is just leaves the populations more or less where they were to start with. There's a little bit of mine movement in, perhaps, but it's very modest, and it doesn't get to one. It remains below one. These cohorts are not replacing themselves in the rest of the UK. Now, in other countries, I'm sure you could find very similar graphs. Colleagues from Spain have used a similar, not, not exactly the same measure, but a similar measure, shown very striking contrast between the region around Madrid and some of the other parts of Spain, where people are moving into Madrid. It's, it's, both international migrations into Madrid, but also movements from rural, rural Spain into Madrid and so on. And clearly, you know, you, to a first approximation, you have like a, the migration system you see at the UK is in two elements, you know. There's London and there's everywhere else. So London and southeast <coughs> and everywhere else. Southeast in this context is the, the Office, of National, Office for National Statistics definition. So that includes Kent, Sussex, Surrey, Hampshire, Berkshire, the area around um, Hertfordshire, Essex, similar area. I think I, I found it pretty striking. The Scottish numbers strike me as very interesting. And, uh, teaching at a Scottish university, of course, <laughs> I can appreciate the, the truth of this. I mean, a great many of my students in geography and St Andrews come from England. Uh, quite a few come from Northern Ireland as well, from the rest of the UK. What you can see is that each of these cohorts shows a very similar pattern. It's a slightly different set. These are just two years apart, 74, 76, which are 86. They all take the same thing, they're declining. 
Basically, the cohorts born in the 1970s were moving out. There was out-migration, net out-migration from Scotland from the 1970s through to the late 1990s. Principally to England, but to other places too. People were moving out, families were moving out and taking their children with them. If you look at the baby boom in Scotland back in the 50s and 60s, there was a big baby boom in Scotland. The population did not grow at all. It was entirely, the surplus of births over deaths during the baby boom was entirely exported, principally to England. You get to 18 and boop, there's this bump between 18 and 22, 23, as students come into it, come into it, and then it goes down again. But at the end, all of these lines are now turning up again. Because in Scotland in the last 10 years, for the first time, you've had two things. You've had significant international immigration into Scotland for the first time, and also significant migration from England to Scotland. First time in documented history that we've had. I mean, most of history, people have followed the, um, have obviously tended to agree with Samuel Johnson on his tour, after his tour of Scotland, he said, he, and finally we came to the finest view in Scotland, the road that leads to England. Um, and the, uh, you know, that the truth of that was borne out by all of these things. But it's the reverse now. Scotland at the moment has got a lot of people like me who were uh, English people who moved to Scotland. Uh, if, it's in, if they're more like me, it'll come down again. So, anyway, that's that was a glimpse of the UK. Let me show you some things about Europe. The basic thing about Europe is that there are very striking regional differences within Europe. There's a huge difference between Western Europe, including the South, and Western <coughs> and South, very large immigration. And most of the east of Europe, very large emigration. Some countries in particular showing very, very radical migration. Overall, Western Europe has experienced replacement migration since the 1970s. Overall, Western Europe gets more than enough migrants to compensate for the shortfall of fertility. Some countries don't quite manage it. Germany doesn't quite manage overall to reach replacement level by about age 30 on these cohorts. It gets to 0.9, 0.95, not quite. Fertility is quite low in Germany, lower than in this country. Um, and then migration isn't quite enough to get it up. But if you look at Italy, say, and especially Spain, you see tremendous immigration. In contrast, Eastern Europe, since the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the communist governments in the East, there's been enormous outmigration from most countries, um, and in particular from the poorest parts of the, of the former communist countries. I have a close friend from Albania who works in unschooled economics, and you know, something like 10% of the population of Al um, what would normally be the population of Albania is living abroad, maybe more than 10%. He, he's here the largest amount in Greece, but also in quite a lot of other places too. Um, I'll show you some numbers from Bulgaria. Radical differences. Now, the out-migration in Eastern Europe has an especially important role to play because these are places that already have very low fertility. You remember I said, you know, Eastern Europe has very low fertility. It's low, it's low fertility in many cases. Not quite below, it's now maybe one point four or something in many of these places, but still very, very low. Um, and on top of that, then they're losing a lot of their migrants. So countries like Bulgaria, for example, as I'll show you, their population is declining <coughs> quite rapidly. And certain cohorts are, de are declining, the young adult are declining to a degree that almost probably has very rarely been seen from a, a large, you know, from a, a national population in 
in recent times. So look at Western Europe overall. The 1.0 line is the replacement again. From the 1970s through to the 1990s, fertility in Western Europe declined. So you know, it was a little bit above replacement in 1972, and then it fell below 75, and it kept on falling. So fertility, by the time you got down to the cohort war in 1995, in Western Europe, women were having an average of about 1.4 children, something like that, something like that. But what you can see is that not all that much happens until you're about 15 or so, but then there's a gradual turn upwards. All of these lines look like they're heading for replacement. Western Europe, the cohorts born 75, 80. By the time they reach their late 20s or 30, they've passed replacement. We stop it off about 25 and 30 because that's those are the ages at which people generally have their children. The average age of childbearing is 30. So these people who are coming in their 20s, if they stay, they're probably going to have children. And so they contribute further to the, to the population. But we, you, you could run it on further and look on, it's quite likely these numbers will continue to increase, I'm thinking, in many cases. The other you know, cohort war in 1985, well, I'm prepared to make a guess that that will continue past that line. And, uh, so you see, for Western Europe as a whole, most countries look something rather similar to that. Some are, as if one or two don't quite make it. Germany doesn't quite make it, but most of them pass that. They have full replacement fertility. Some, it's a really remarkable system. If you look at Switzerland, they have, they've had, since the 19th, through the 70s and on to the present, they've had this remarkably stable situation that um, fertility fell a little through the 70s. But since the mid-70s, so for almost the last 30 years, the level of childbearing in Switzerland has been very similar. It hasn't changed very much. It's changed very similar. And it's about one and a half children per woman. So like 1.4 children per woman, one and a half children per lifetime. An average of that. But they have very significant immigration. So that every one of these cohorts is, is coming up and passing in place. So it seems to me to suggest that you can have really quite stable, enduring demographic regimes where you have very low fertility and still substantial net inflow of, of migrants. Way beyond, I think, the levels that people thought would be sustained politically and socially sustainable in the 1980s. I mean, the demographers who were writing in the 80s wouldn't have believed, I think, that you could have graphs, you could see graphs like this now. They would have said, no, it wouldn't happen. The governments would introduce policies against it and there would be so many changes. Italy, for Francesco here. Uh, fertility was a bit higher, 72, 75, but you can see how these things are all, they're all whizzing up. They're all going, I mean, my best guess is they're all going to pass replacement level. Certainly they're heading, heading in that direction. Cohort 1980 is almost, almost up there. These numbers only run through to a few years ago, about 2010, I think, was the last, eight, last 2011 maybe was the last year. But basically you see that. And most striking of all, Spain, sorry, we're the wrong way, um, Spain is on a different scale. They had much higher fertility relatively recently, so the scale is much bigger for Spain. The other graphs, all the other graphs I've been showing you run from um, 0.5 or point, yeah, 0.5 to 1.3. Well, Spain runs from 0.4 to 1.8, much higher. But you can see these radical um, changes. There was a tremendous discontinuity in Spain roughly about 1990. Things began to really change there, huge amounts of immigration. Exactly when these changes happened is conjectural. 
Spain's one of these countries, like Italy, where there's a great deal of undocumented migration, which retrospectively gets legitimated. And when it's retrospectively legitimated, there's a kind of the statisticians kind of locate the people where they think they think they came. You know, so that it's a this isn't a measure of people actually coming. You know, we don't know for sure exactly when they came, but they're there now. You know, and so you see that's the impact. Very. These, are, these imply very big levels of population growth. These are looking 1.6, 1.5, 1.4. This is just one, one generation to the next is going up 50%. So that's, that's a very, uh, suggesting a very substantial population growth. And in contrast, places like Bulgaria have got this, they have these very sharply declining. The, the data for Bulgaria are much less. Um, probably much less reliable and much less accurate than for Western Europe. Generally speaking, many of the poorer parts of Eastern Europe uh, don't have such well-developed statistical systems. And so every, basically the census, they suddenly discover they've got more or fewer people, but they don't retrospectively go back. So you can find some sudden discontinuity. <coughs> they have a census, they have 10 years, and then they have a census, and then they suddenly discover they've got fewer people than they thought. So probably didn't go like that. It probably was a more smoother, smoother change, but we just don't have the data and are not that good. They're certainly good enough to tell you what's going on broadly. And what's going on is enormous out-migration. And already you're looking at, if you look at, say, cohort born in 1975, fertility was a little bit above replacement, 1.18. By the time they were 35, it was down to 0.9. So it's gone down almost a third. They've lost almost a third of that birth cohort. Well, fertility is now down here, 0.6. If they lose a third of that, then it's going to be down below 0.5. In other words, the generation <coughs> of children is going to be less than half the size of the generation of parents. It's going to be an enormous, enormous change to the dynamics. So a country like Bulgaria is, um, I mean, I suspect that whatever Whatever the government of Bulgaria currently says about British attempt to dissuade people moving from Bulgaria, there will always be some people in the, in the uh, Bulgarian government who would secretly be, be pleased if they managed to dissuade, especially well-skilled people, from leaving Bulgaria because they'd have to, uh, they could be heading for a very substantial um, population decline in Bulgaria. And of course, it's young adults who are migrating, the most productive work parts of the workforce. Let me just finish up with a lot of general comments. People sometimes talk about migration as if it's a solution to ageing. Okay? There is no solution to ageing. Ageing is not a problem that has a solution. Okay? Ageing is a predicament that we've got to learn to live with. There is no solution. Every society is going to get old. If you, if you live a long time, the life expectancy is rising in Britain as fast or faster now than has ever risen before. We're living longer. Um, James Vopel, the Max Planck Institute for Demography in Germany, has a nice way of putting it. He says, well, imagine, just think, when you go to bed tonight, from the previous 24 hours, you've only been charged 18. Because the life expectancy is actually going up three, it's actually going up six hours a day. <laughs> Your life expectancy is going up three months a year. Life expectancy increases one year every four years. So, we're living longer and longer, aging is just going to happen. If you have that situation and you don't have rapid population growth, you're going to have aging. So migration doesn't solve aging. 
It does. Ha it can, however, slow the speed with which aging becomes an urgent problem because it's reducing the impacts on the labour force. You're providing workers for cohorts that would otherwise be smaller. You know, if you if you if you, if you have immigration, so immigration can do that. For a country like Bulgaria, of course, or the other parts of Europe, it's worsening the aging. <coughs> it's taking away the young population, so it's leaving, it's making things even worse. So the regionally varied nature of, of the impact of immigration will tend to widen regional differences within countries and between between different parts of Europe, immigration and emigration regions. And that's just an overview of what we've published already on this. Thinking about the future seems to me that we can go beyond the kind of applications <coughs> we see here, which are just for countries and large regions. We can also go to much smaller units of analysis to investigate more specific impacts Basically, anywhere where we've got a sequence of estimates of population by age, we can apply this. We can apply a very simple method. So that opens up all kinds of possibilities, looking at socioeconomic groups, maybe ethnic groups. Lee Williamson, my colleague at St. Andrews, was just, I was just talking to her a couple of days ago, and she's, going, she's got some data where she can disaggregate the impact of the oil capital on the different regions of internal migration and international migration. So you can disaggregate the population by country of birth. So look at begin to look at that, and another, and the, the the fact that it's so simple to calculate means that you can do quite a lot of international comparisons relatively easily, whereas that's often quite hard for migration related stuff because the statistics are often not not terribly well harmonised. I mean, countries many of the countries in Europe look at Britain and say, you mean you calculate your estimates on migration from this little survey that you take on one in a thousand international passengers? And so, I mean, yes. Oh gosh. <laughs> So um, the ORI gets around a lot of those kinds of those kinds of problems. And if you're interested, there's two articles. One that came out in March in Population and Development Review, and one that came out in September 2011 with Lee Williamson on the UK. So one on Europe and one on the UK. And that's it. <coughs>